Do I have any people watchers in the house with me today? Like you enjoy just kind of sitting and watching people as they do things. Yes. Okay. I've got a few of them. I, I enjoy it. I enjoy trying to figure out what in the world is going through that person's mind as they do that. But one of my favorite places to just kind of look at the way that people are is within professional sports because this is just an interesting subset of people because this is like your alpha male of the alpha males. Like everybody believes that they're the boss and they're the king of the world and they will be who they want to be. They will dance how they want to dance. And so just even seeing the way that that culture is around each other is really interesting to me. Uh, When something goes right, the way that offensive linemen from a football team will dance together and none of them can dance, but it doesn't matter because they're so big and so strong, they don't even care. It's just an interesting thing. When things go wrong on an NBA basketball court, It's interesting because you'll see one team who's like jumping in the air and chest bumping and high-fiving and one team that's not even touching each other. But sometimes you'll see teams that it's like when things are going wrong, like they've got that one hype guy that it's like he's hitting, he's touching everybody, trying to get them back on the same page of where they're supposed to be because that one person understands, first of all, within the emotion of the game, the importance. But one of the ways to influence what's happening emotionally is to get your hands on somebody else. Physical touch is powerful. Uh, This was recently on display in a college basketball game a couple years ago, and I love this this moment. It it was UCLA and, oh, who was the other team? I forget. I have it in my notes. Um, In Oregon. And it was in overtime. Two minutes left. Big game. UCLA gets a turnover. They're coming down the court. They make a pass to um, Moses Brown, and he's right by the free throw line. And in my basketball opinion, he should have just drove hard to the basket, put it up. But he kind of froze, tried to make a pass backwards towards the three-point line. And with two minutes left in overtime, down by two points, he threw the ball out of bounds. Yeah, oh, I mean, that hurts, especially a college player. It's like so much of their emotion is riding in that moment. And he's walking down the court and his head just drops. And then the point guard of the team walks over to him, gives him five, hits him on the back and reaches up, grabs him by the chin and lifts his chin back up. And it was almost like you could see like the breath come back into his lungs, like it's okay. And it's amazing how much was communicated and how much was changed, not by what was said, by just physical touch, just the reassurance and the reaffirmation that can be communicated through physical touch. And we know that a hug is meaningful. We we, we know that when we get, and I know some of you guys are anti-physical touch people, and we will pray for healing for you today, but there is a truth about you that you have a need for physical touch. And and psychologists and counselors who have written on this, one of the quotes that, that, that I've seen in a lot of different places from a counselor, her opinion is that four hugs a day are needed for survival, eight hugs a day for maintenance, and we need 12 hugs a day for emotional growth. And there are so many, and this is a term that counselors use, there are so many people in our world today, especially after COVID, and the term that they use is they have skin hunger. Skin hunger. Yeah, that that sounds creepy, not in like a cannibalism way, all right? That's not what, they, they have a hunger to actually just have someone reach out and touch their hand, to be hugged by someone, 
because they're not getting the four hugs a day. And especially in this COVID world, there, there's so much of that right now. And I mean, it, it, it impacted my heart when I was talking with one of you last night who was back to church and just crying over the hugs that she's missed. Like, I, I'm so glad to have you back. But there is a need for that. And that need, I believe, was put there and designed by God in you. He designed us to have a reliance on him and a reliance on each other. We're supposed to be a body, a church, that when one part is missing, all parts suffer. And so we need each other, even for the simplest things of a hug and a handshake and a pat on the back, because it communicates so much. And in this series, we've been talking uh, about relational health. And we're on the final week of it. This, this is week number five. It's really kind of the capstone. And if you haven't been here, this is, this is the basis of it. That a relationship can be described as being held together by five bonds. And this is the work from Dr. John Van Epp, uh, who has been a church planter, a pastor. He's taught at colleges and has taught relational health all over the world. And the very first thing is if you want a healthy relationship, you have to start in the area of knowing the person. You have to get to know them first. You can't start with commitment. You can't start with reliance. You can't start with touch. We know how weird it is when someone that we don't know walks up to us and starts putting their hands on us uninvited. We do not like it. There there needs to be some knowledge of who you are. Even as I was meeting someone today, so glad you're here. But it was like, I don't know you yet. I'm going to shake your hand. I'm not going to hug you. And I was like, that's right in my message today. If you don't know me, you don't want my touch yet. And that's fine. I understand that. I feel the same way. But a healthy relationship, it never has one of the levels to the right exceeding the one to the left. Because when you trust someone more than you know them, that is a recipe for disaster. When you rely on someone more than you know them, or you have to rely on them more than you trust them, you don't trust them, but you are stuck relying on them. You know how much anxiety you feel. And so a healthy relationship always is descending in these areas, but we've seen so many relationships that when they get started, it's just all about touch. And then eventually they find out once they get to know each other, we don't even like each other. We just wanted to touch each other. And then there's wounds and there's baggage and touch. It's a tremendous gift from God. Touch of itself, it is not evil. It is not bad. It can be used for bad, but it is of itself not bad. And so today we're going to look into some areas of touch because as you look at the life of Jesus, you will just see so many times to communicate affection and care and love where he just had his hands on people. I mean, people would bring him children and the disciples were like, Jesus is too important for children. And he's putting his hands on them and he's blessing them and he's bringing them to him. You, you see so many times when the disciples were gathered, like in John 13, 23, it, and we'll put this up on the screen. It says, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to him. And this is at a dinner situation. So just even as I say that, I think that sometimes it's hard for us to understand like how awkward were they sitting in these chairs at the table because you've seen this picture of the Last Supper. Like that's what we often see and that's what we think of. And there's so many things that people try to like say, okay, what was Da Vinci saying when he made this? But this is not how they were eating. This, is, this was not culturally current. And this is a total 70s vibe picture, but it was one of the best ones that I could find that demonstrate. Go and go to the next one. This is more of how they sat. 
At the meals in this culture, there would be a U-shaped table that was low to the ground and it would have mats or almost like a couch that surrounded it. And so when you sat on it, you would be somewhat laying on your side with your left elbow on the table and eating with your right hand. And so whoever sat to the right of you, it was very easy for them. If you knew them well enough to where it wasn't terribly awkward, they would just lean their head back on your chest because they're right there. These were also designed culturally to seat about nine people. But if you're good at math and you remember Jesus had 12 disciples plus himself, 13 people, if there's no one from the house that's sitting with them and no other servants that were invited, they were seating at least 13 people at a table made for nine. And so it was, it was close. There was physical contact there. Um, and, and it's a little bit different than the picture that we've had, but whether it was when Jesus was eating with his disciples and his disciples were reclining against him, when he would pray for someone and he, and he would touch a leper and heal, All of those things were things that communicated worth and value in a way that people would receive. And I want want to communicate to you, physical touch matters. And if you have felt like you have not been cared for, that you have not been loved, the church should be one place where you come in and you know someone is going to reach out and shake my hand. Uh, we, we have one lady here who, who usually is always greeting. Her name's Liz. You've probably seen her around. Um, more than one person who's come to Gulfside said, Gulfside Church became my home church before service started when Liz gave me a hug and welcomed me in. And that might seem like, well, that seems like a small thing of how to pick a church. It communicates so much more than just a greeting. And we know that the love of God flows through Liz as she's doing the ministry that she's called to do. But I want to just impress on you a little bit about how much communication and importance happens through that touch. Jesus modeled it all through his life. The, the other interesting thing about the way that they were laying, it should probably change some of the mental picture that you had when, when you read the passages where a woman came in and she was crying at the feet of Jesus at a meal. It's because they're easily accessible. A servant who would come through, usually it's the lowest servant in the house, the Jewish servants would completely avoid it if at all possible because they did not like to wash feet because if someone stepped on a dead thing, that would make them ceremonially unclean. And so the very lowest servant in the household would be the one to wash feet. And the way that they were sitting at the meal, it would happen while they were eating at times because they would just be working outside farthest away from the table. This should change your picture of how when Jesus was washing feet, what was happening? They were at the table and then he prepared and he took off his outer garment and he got down and he washed their feet and went all around. And as we read those passages about the Last Supper, there's a couple other details that I think are noteworthy. First of all, John was the one who was seated to Jesus' right, but the but. Jesus being the the main host of the event, the seat of most importance, the next one that was seated next to him was actually Judas. Judas was actually sitting in the place of the guest of honor, according to the things that we can infer from the passages. It's incredible when you read that passage and you think about the physical touch and what that communicates of what Jesus was doing. Jesus had Judas sitting in the guest seat of honor. Jesus washed his feet before he was betrayed by him. I don't know if you've ever had your feet washed by someone else, whether at a church function 
or just out of necessity if you've been in the hospital, but it is an incredibly humbling experience for someone to take that position, even in today's culture where it's really removed from a regular occurrence, but for someone to to take that position of a servant and remove your shoes, remove your socks, and wash your feet, it like strikes at your heart. And Jesus was willing to put himself into the lowest position of servanthood to set an example for you. And he, and he said, you'll understand later why I've done this. He, he said, you're going to understand, you're going to do this as well. And so I, I want to rest there for a minute just for our anti-physical touch people. I'm going to ask you to just reach out into the area of actually shaking some people's hands because it communicates something important. You can, you can use hand sanitizer in between every single handshake if you want to. But I want you to understand what you're communicating when you refuse to greet someone. I mean, that's damaging. And I know that your heart probably isn't, I don't care about you. My heart, your heart probably isn't, I don't care that you're here. Your heart probably isn't, I want to ignore you. But especially at church, which is supposed to be the body of Christ, people should be feeling loved, they should feel welcomed as they come in here. And if you have to just start of actually saying hi, waving, and going away before conversation breaks out because that scares you too much, just get started moving forward. But the goal is we understand the importance of communication and physical touch and what it does for people. And within the situation with Jesus and Judas, it's amazing. They shared a meal together. They were rubbing up They were sitting right next to each other. They shared food together. At the very end, Jesus said, this is going to be a sign of who's going to betray me. And they shared food. And it kind of reminds me of another important point of physical touch in in our lives that we have to be aware of is, you know, the the first thing I'd say was kind of friendship touch. And then then the next thing, there, there is fake touch that's out there. Like Judas was there, but his heart had already gone far away from Jesus. And, and we know that so much of our world today, that relationships, they look, they look something like this a lot of times, where it's like the, the fake touch. That, and this is the interesting thing, because so many people will use touch in a way to try to make it seem like these are healthier than they are. I mean, you've, you've seen this happen. A person who says, you know, I, I, I know that I don't really know them well yet, but I want to know them and I want to trust them and I, I want to eventually be able to rely on them and I want us to be committed. And so I'm just going to go all the way here in the hopes that this is going to pull up the rest of the things that belong in our relationship. And that's going to hurt. It's going to damage your future. And it's something that I believe that God will heal when you give it back to him. But the importance of getting this right is so so important because there's so many people in our world who will be happy to abuse touch. There's a term that, that often gets thrown around with women of saying, I feel like I got used by him. And that's what happens when someone uses touch and pretends like these will follow along. And that's, that's not God's design for you. Uh, I, 
<laughs> I've learned in my life that there's things that people will do and they just don't make sense. There's like things, just even with raising children, child falls, there is no bruise, there is no scrape, but there is a desire to have a Band-Aid on it. And as a dad, I'm like, I'm not putting a Band-Aid on it. You don't need a Band-Aid. And that lasted, you know, through a few tears. I'm fine, here, have a Band-Aid. It doesn't make sense to do this. This is a complete placebo thing, but I'm going to do it. It doesn't make sense. We're covering up something that doesn't need to be covered up. Uh, On the opposite side of that scale, there are times where people will just want to put a Band-Aid over something that is very severe, especially in their emotional life. Where they've gone through and they've experienced what I would say fake touch or inappropriate touch. Where, where touch was used to damage and destroy. And I want to tell you that that is no small thing. And if you're on the far end of that, you can see that. But if you're on the front end of making this decision, you might be saying things like this. If I just kind of use fake touch, if I give more touch than I should at this stage at, the li- at our life, then I might make them stay. And we can put this up. I'm going to put a list because some of these might sound familiar. I, I might make them stay if I, if, I, if I just go further than I think I should. Uh, I might make them like me. They might like me better. They might, might feel closer to them. I might feel loved. I might feel important. I might feel valued. And it's like, we want all of those feelings, but man, can you see that all of those feelings belong here? It's like in a relationship, all of those things that you're supposed to sense uh, of, you know, do I know them? Are they going to like me when they know me? That, that happens here. Uh, am I going to feel closer to them and trust them? That happens here. Am I going to feel loved? Will I be able to rely on them? Will, will I feel important? Will, I, will they be committed to me? All of those things happen in these other categories, but we have seen and we have felt and we have decided to try to gain those through touch. And we are covering up a huge problem. We want all of those things, but we're trying to achieve it in a wrong way. We're trying to shortcut God. And I want to tell you, God has so much better for you than trying to go outside of his boundaries to get what he knows that you need. He knows that you need those things. And because he loves you, he's given you instructions about how to get them. And when you choose to give touch to try to achieve those, you're going to miss out on them. You're receiving something that feels fake and touch is never going to be strong enough to bring all of these up because if someone doesn't want to do life in the right way, they're not going to choose to do their relationship in the right way. They will eventually go outside of those bounds again when they're supposed to be committed to you, but because you never developed commitment and you only went with touch, if that's all that they want, that's all that they'll seek after. You've got to get this in line. You've got, to, you've got to get your future in line, single people. If you want God's best, if you want his will in your life, you will find it by walking in his ways. God's ways will always direct you towards his will. And I, I want you to have that whole list. I want you to know that you're important, know that you're loved, know that you're valued. But I'm going to tell you, touch, when interjected at the wrong time in a relationship, that's what's described as sexual immorality in Scripture. When it's the wrong time, it's not bad. 
But if it's in the wrong relationship, it is destructive. And so the instructions that we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, is that when sexual immorality becomes part of your life or gets near you, the temptation is there, is to flee from it. To remove yourself from the situation, which is so critically important because when you allow yourself to just stay around temptation, eventually you will give into it. It's one of the biological processes. There's two biological processes. I wasn't planning on bringing this part up, but I, I've had this talk with teenagers so many times. I know this part by heart, though I forgot the biological term. There's two processes that happen in your body that will only build, build, build until it's finished. One of them is sexual temptation and the other one is childbirth. Once the process gets started, it doesn't finish until it's done. Biologically, it'll be a fight that you won't win on your own. You have to remove yourself from the situation. There are boundaries and God has set those boundaries up for us because he knows what we need and he knows what our future is supposed to look like. I think I've shared this before, but I just find this anecdote so funny. It's just the joke about the um, young DEA agent and the old farmer in Texas. The young DEA agent showed up. He was assigned to go check on this farm that, that was near the border of Mexico and Texas. And he walked up with his badge to the old farmer and said, hey, I'm here from the DEA. I've got to look around and make sure that everything's okay here. The old farmer said, that's fine. Just whatever you do, just don't cross that fence line. And the young man incensed, someone questioning his power said, do you see this badge? I can look wherever I want to, whenever I want to, and you're not going to tell me anything about where I can go. And the old farmer said, very well, fine. A few moments later, there's a screaming from the other side of the fence as the young DEA agent was running back towards the fence and behind him was a very large bull that was gaining ground on him. And the old farmer leaned towards the fence and said, show him your badge. <laughs> Boundaries aren't always there to keep fun away from us. Boundaries are usually there to protect you from something that is dangerous for this time. When God sets guardrails around something, when he sets something in a timeline, there's a purpose and a plan around it. And it's not that God wants to keep you from any good thing. In fact, he has better things planned for you than what you could ever plan for yourself. And, and the gift that he, he gave us in touch in sexuality, it's an incredible gift. But when it's abused, it can be very destructive like it was with King David. King David is a really interesting example. He's a great case study in scripture to look at his life because he was described as a man after God's own heart, but he also had some significant failures. One of one was he, he committed adultery. And when he went through that, Psalm 32, verse three, we're gonna start there as a really interesting record of what that was like for him. He said, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me 
with songs of victory. Do you, do you see how God is responding to someone who messed up severely, but then they decide to come back and they decide to be honest and they decide to confess it and they decide to get things right and to move out of, do you see God's attitude towards someone who repents? He is a loving, just God who wants you back home if you've strayed away from him. Back to verse seven, for you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. Do you hear that? I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and a bridle to keep it under control. If you have messed up, stop acting like a mule. You can go King James Version if you want to. I'm just not old enough to pull that move yet. (laughs) Y'all who know my pastor, Greg Paris, he can do that. He's older. I can't yet. But do you see the comparison? Do you see the importance? God isn't looking for someone who was perfect all the time. But he is looking for his child that he loves, that messed up, that maybe was afraid to get things right because they're afraid of judgment to come. When the reality is, when we choose not to get things right, we're living under judgment that whole time. David says, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. I groaned all day long. Your discipline was heavy on me. That's the experience of walking around with guilt and shame in your life. God wants you to be freed from that. So especially on this area of touch, if you feel like, man, I have done nothing but mess that up in my life. God says, come home. Just come home on that. Just get that right. I have better things in store for you. I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. But you've got to stop acting like a senseless mule. Because God wants something that's fulfilling for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 gives some parameters, and I chose to go with the NIV. If you want an interesting, um, very good translation of the NLT, but just because I knew that we'd have kids in the room, I stuck with the NIV on this. Um, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, the wife to her husband. Scripturally, our needs are supposed to be met. There isn't supposed to be want. It's supposed to be fulfilled by the other person that God has given you. Men, can I get a better amen about that? Amen. Touch is good, right? Like this is a good thing that God has given us. Like we, it's okay to celebrate that. That, that. This is awesome. God loves us and he placed this in our life for a purpose in a position that it's really kind of the capstone of, of, of these things that knowing, trusting, relying, and committing opens this door for this incredible relationship that's only supposed to be shared by one other person. And 1 Corinthians 7, it even goes on in verse 5 to say, and don't deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Prayer is the only reason to kind of put a pause on that. Other than that, it's supposed to be an active part of a relationship in marriage, but don't ever try to just take that piece because once again, touch is built on this foundation. And so many marriages that begin to lose this piece This didn't just go away on its own. These slowly faded downward. 
And so men, the biblical calling is that, yes, this is supposed to be a big part of a relationship that's built on a bigger part of the foundation of us knowing, trusting, relying, and being committed to each other. And when you try to have a relationship that only has one of those bonds, the relationship is going to be messy. God has designed it and he has given it to you. And band, if you don't want to make your way up here, I'm going to begin to close this thing out. The design for marriage between a husband and a wife from the very beginning that God created Adam and then created Eve out of his side, things were being communicated. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, Adam said after God had created Eve from his side, he said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And there's this balance to what was just written there. I don't know if you caught it right away, but it was like she was taken from him. But then as they come together, it's like they are remade once again. That she was made from him. Like they, they, they were one and then they become one again in marriage. And this sentiment is so important that it's repeated in Matthew 19, 5, where, where Jesus said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. In Mark 10, 8, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Ephesians 5, verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is a beautiful, challenging, lifelong adventure that you take on that has incredible, beautiful intricacies about it that are unique to a married relationship. Because the goal is that two lives that were separate, separate become like one life. Not just one area of your life, not just your mind, not just knowledge of each other, not just trust, definitely not just touch. All of these bonds wrap into each other. So maybe right now in your relationship, when you have gone through the series, you say, most things are good, but they haven't been able to rely on me. And I've got to step that up. Maybe you say, in our relationship, just we together, we've struggled in this one area. Like I referenced before, when we walk in his ways, it leads us to his will. I want to encourage you. You've got to take steps to get better. You can't just know and feel, oh, this is our area of weakness. Within the area, if you're married to someone and you say, this is where we need to grow, you need to have the conversation. And say, I feel like I can do better in this area. I feel like we can grow in this area. That if your, your chin has been down in your marriage, you've got, you've got to reach over and lift up your spouse's chin and say, it's going to be all right. We're still in this fight together. God is in this, this with us. But it takes some steps. So I believe that this series can arm you with some knowledge to grow, but it's got to be on you to start the conversations. And I know that you won't be doing this fight alone. Know that God will be right in the middle of it with you. And young people in the room, single people in the room, set your course. Don't be led 
in a different direction outside of God's will by any other person that you'd walk along, any pretty face, any handsome guy. Know what God wants for your life and chase after it. And then that, that promise is there that I want to end on. He will guide you along the best pathway for your life. As you walk in his ways, you can trust that he's guiding you down the best pathway for your life. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much that you have great things in store for us. That as we walk in obedience, that your presence is enough for any of the difficulties. And with hearts that are hurting because of their mistakes or mistakes that were forced upon them by someone else, we just pray for healing and we thank you that there is mercy. We thank you that you always bring us back and just like David who had messed up, you bring the, us back when we're ready to be honest with you. So give us courage within our hearts to do business with you today if there's something that we've been putting off. Help us to give it back to you and never take that away again. We thank you for your mercy, Lord, in Jesus' name.